Um, to bring us back to our own lives and our own involvement in your body. And so we pray now that as, uh, as Peter leads us into the next session, that we will learn from the road that your, your church has traveled on, sometimes the wrong roads, sometimes dead ends. And yet, Lord, despite it all and through it all, you have come to reach us through your body. And so we thank you for that, for your faithfulness as you guide your people forward. Amen. Okay, we're starting off with another quiz. I've got, we've gone all high-tech since you last saw me. We've got a microphone stand, a solid note stand. We're, we're really moving forward. Everyone got a piece of paper? Yeah. If you don't, fantastic. So, okay, remember, name on top. This time, top right-hand corner, quiz two. Okay, number two. And um, just a, a quick comment. You don't have to be polite during these sessions, by the way. You have to be polite for Andre and Matt and the others, but not for me. So I'm used to having students call out. To, if I say a word that you do not understand, throw your hand up, call out, that's okay. Okay, It won't bother me in the slides. All right, so moving on to uh, the next session, looking at the, uh, the medieval reformation period, and here are our quiz questions. If anyone knows anything about the medieval period, it's usually something to do with the Crusades. And there are quite a few of these. Uh, pope Urban II was the Pope who called the First Crusade. And he promised people if they went to fight in the First Crusade to try to recapture Jerusalem, they would be given certain benefits. So three of these things are things that he promised people. You have to choose which one he didn't promise people. A, freedom from tithing. B, guaranteed entry into heaven. C, reduced time in purgatory. Or D, exemption from taxes. So a reminder, purgatory is that intermediate state that they develop um, where you spend a lot of time on your way to heaven. That medieval theology. So there you your choices. Question two. This one gets a bit personal. Anyone here been married recently? No one's, no one's going to mention. Okay. Fine recently. Yes. Fine They're fine recently. recently. <laughs> Any time in the in the last thirty years is recently. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Martin and Kate Luther. We were talking a bit about that. On their wedding night in their bedroom, there were people present. The question is why? Was it? A. In Germany at the time, it was customary to have witnesses observe the marriage consummation. B. Catholics had vowed to kill Martin and Katie before they could produce schismatic offspring. That's people who would follow in their er erroneous footsteps. Um, C. It was customary to bless the bed to make the wife more fruitful. Or D. They didn't have a guest bedroom. So they had to have people stay in, in their room and come to the wedding. A, B, C, or D. Question three. Which of the following has not been, sadly, sad question, a communion issue over which Christians have killed one another? So one of the things we'll see last session, we were talking about Christians being persecuted. 
we start moving into another phase now where Christians are killing other Christians. A tragic irony, but... Okay, communion issues. People got killed over this. Um, so three of these were issues people did kill other people over. So you have to, again, pick the one they didn't. A, should people get both the bread and the wine or just the bread? B, should bread or a cracker be used? C, does the bread contain Christ's body or merely represent Christ's body? Or D, can white grapes be used or must they be purple grapes as in Palestine? Bit of a sad question, really, isn't it? All good reasons to keep. Now, here's one of my favourite questions uh, coming up. Church history, one of the things I love about it is because it's populated with people, it's, it can be pretty crazy. Okay. <laughs> what do Noah's beard, Mary's milk, and Joseph's breath have in common? A, they were all white. B, they were all warm. C, they were all alleged relics contained in medieval churches. I'll have to explain that term later, but in the meantime, you're just going to have to take the chances. Uh, or D, they were found last year in a cave in Israel, neatly labelled and in a remarkable state of preservation. What do Noah's beard, Mary's milk, and Joseph's breath have in common? All right, so once you've made your choices, please pass them to this side of the room. Deborah, if you can collect them for me again, please. And then I'll give you the answers. Thank you. That's okay. <laughs> I should come back to those ones. Okay. You get them. Okay. All those being collected now. Excellent. Oh, there's a few more. Got to make sure we've got a clean contest here for the final winner tomorrow. Okay. All right. The answer. Uh, question one. Promised them all of those except A. I can get cynical here and say that would be the one that would actually cost the church something. But um, I, I wouldn't do that. Church historians are never cynical. Okay. okay. Uh, the correct answer here was A. Now, there's two reasons for this, because you've been asked why. Okay. So, obviously, proof of virginity is one reason. Um, marriages, uh, and the fact that it was um, the marriage actually the consummation to take place. So, for example, if a guy got tired of his wife six months into the marriage and said, we never had sex, then he could have the marriage annulled. Okay? Um, or if, let's say, a baby appeared inconveniently soon 
after the marriage day. The husband could then have suspicions and, and just say, oh, look, we never had sex. So it must be someone else's, so she's unfaithful, so get rid of that. So really this was an insurance policy for the woman, however you wanted to look at it. Um, and however much society has changed since. Okay, which one is the correct answer here? It was D. They didn't kill each other over the colour of the grapes. Correct answer here uh, is C. Um, now, a relic was, as we'll talk a little bit more about these as we go ahead, a relic was an item that had something to do with a person who was seen to be holy. So, uh, there, was, there was a joke um, saying that, for example, if you collected all the fragments of the supposedly true cross of Christ that were in churches and cathedrals around Europe and put them all in one place, you'd have a, enough wood to reconstruct Noah's Ark. So, people saw these things as having spiritual power. Uh, it links back to our comment from the previous session about approaching God through others. Uh, the saints and holy people were seen as having spiritual power, so then any item to do with them had spiritual power. This got a bit bizarre. So some of you would have heard of um, St. Francis of Assisi, founded the Franciscans. Um, when it was obvious he was dying, they... Oh, no, it's not a quiz question, I don't think. Um, they had to put an armed guard around his, um, his body before he died um, because the risk was people were going to actually open his veins up while he was still living and dip handkerchiefs into the veins to absorb the blood because that would be a relic. So they're just a bit too impatient, didn't really want further people to wait for people to actually die um, before grabbing bits and pieces of him. Um, so, very different world. Okay, so you now know how you've done uh, with those. So once we move on um, from the early church period and move into what's what's the Middle Ages. So we now have, as we said in the previous session, a church that's strongly institutional, it's a hierarchy, there's a division between the clergy and everybody else. So what can the individuals do to pursue God in that in that era? Now we get a bit Monty Python here, as uh, as Nick said. In the period of martyrdom, if you were a very sincere Christian wanting to follow God with all your heart, then martyrdom was something you aspired to. You wanted to be persecuted and perhaps die for your faith. We actually have cases where mothers had to hide their sons' clothes uh, because they basically wanted to run out into the street when they saw people coming by who might arrest them for their faith. Um, and so knowing that they wouldn't run into the street naked, um, and I don't know what difference it makes if you're going to die anyway, but still, um, the mothers would hide the clothes. Martyrdom was a career option. Uh, the word martyr uh, means witness. So a mar- dying for your faith was the ultimate way you could give witness to what you believed. Now, the Monty Pike the moment is, uh, if you can visualise all these keen people lining up to give their lives for the faith, this is, it's, I want to give my life for God. I want to give my life for God. I want to give my life for God. And suddenly what happens? The emperor converts to Christianity. And suddenly no one wants to kill you for being a Christian. Immensely frustrating for those people for whom that was their goal. What do you do now? Well, good question. Um, that career option has been removed. So 
this word I mentioned, I think in the earlier quiz, asceticism, really comes in to replace it. You know, the phrase that we, we know, probably dying to self, if you like. So if you couldn't physically die for your faith anymore, you could die in other ways. Uh, and that became the new, the new concept. So uh, this would involve things like, you know, you live in a cave, you eat dried fish, you live in a, uh, a sack for clothes, you never marry or have children, uh, and it's basically you and God out in the desert sort of thing, that lifestyle. Now, there were some downsides to that. It could, as you can imagine, easily lead to a life of self-obsession and insanity. Um, it also actually, as a sideline, proves perhaps that your mother may have been lying to you for many years. Um, one of the most famous ascetics was a guy called St Anthony, who apparently lived to be 120. Um, and he lived on a diet of um, bread, water and salt, I think. So no vegetables, and he lived to be 120. So have a chat to your mother about that if you, if you want to. Um, but clearly, uh, leading a life by yourself out in the desert could lead to some strange things. Here's a picture. Um, this is a guy called Simon Stylites. Now, one of the things that... There are certain themes that resonate throughout Christianity. Holiness is one of them. Each generation considers what does it mean to live, live a holy life. Now, for people who were ascetic... Uh, living a holy life means distancing yourself from sin, distancing yourself from, from evil and temptation. Apparently one of the ways of doing that was to live on top of a pillar, removing yourself from the temptations of the world. And when I say living on top of a pillar, I mean never coming down. <laughs> For years. Now this leads to certain questions. How do you eat? Well, Food's handed up to you on a long pole. You're still at a height from the ground. Uh, you can see the snakes down the bottom there. Snakes can't climb pillars, so that's useful. Um, you're still at preaching height. So people can still gather and hear you preach. Um, you might be wondering about toileting arrangements. It, it's messy up there. Okay. And apparently he did have a nice collection of, of pet maggots. Um, so this, so I hope you didn't have too much morning tea. Um, but this is an image which is bizarre to us of people pursuing holiness, people dedicating their lives to God. This was not, by the way, just one guy. I think this particular fad went on for over a thousand years in particular parts of the world. This is just not one guy's way of pursuing God. Monasteries. We know about convents and monasteries. This is a development out of asceticism. When people realise that you could perhaps become completely self-obsessed and insane living in a cave in the desert for 120 years just eating bread and salt, um, they thought, okay, so what about having those sort of ideals but doing it in community? Um, so really monasticism, and we've all seen movies with monasteries in it, con convents, <laughs> Um, became a community of people with that goal of holiness. Uh, they visualised life as a constant struggle between good and evil, requiring uh, ongoing discipline 
and there were various types of, of monastic orders. They pick up an aspect of what we would today call mentoring, as people helped others on their, on their spiritual journeys. And there were a wide range of both advantages and disadvantages to monasticism. From our point of view, as, as people who believe in spreading the gospel, we might look at that and think, well, hang on, doesn't that take people out of the world uh, from an evangelistic perspective? But often these monasteries were very much involved with the communities nearby. Uh, they would often grow food, they would often serve in the community, and many cases became centres of, of revival uh, during the Middle Ages. So they weren't completely isolated in most cases from the surrounding communities. One of the huge benefits that they created, to which we all owe them the debt, is the fact everyone here presumably has a Bible. Thank these guys. If it hadn't been for these guys copying manuscripts for hundreds of years through the Middle Ages, you wouldn't have it. Okay? Printing press isn't invented until the mid-1400s. So for all those centuries in, in the interim between the New Testament documents and the time of the printing press, it was people like this who made sure that, that books um, continued. <laughs> okay. In the developing theology, one of the reasons, by the way, we can put the medieval and the Reformation period together when it's the biggest period of church history, is that in some ways, theologically, things stay on a relatively even keel in much of Western Europe for that time. Um, one of the ideas that developed in Roman Catholic Church, and particularly clarified, say, around about 1100, is that there were seven sacraments. This became Roman Catholic teaching, and... These are the seven sacraments. So, uh, uh, baptism, confirmation, marriage, confession or penance, Eucharist or communion, extreme unction or the last rites. Uh, you've probably seen that in movies. And uh, what happened in giving it to somebody just before they die. Uh, ordination itself. So, when you look at those seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, you can see that really, as my last point says, the, the clergy really control the spiritual life from the cradle to the grave. All of these seven sacraments need an official ordained clergyman to work. Um, and it, therefore, if you're not part of the church or not tapping into that system, really that is, again, isolating you uh, from a spiritual experience with God. That comes on top of what we said in the previous session, that the church had already become quite hierarchical. And really the, the, the spiritual people were seen to be the ordained people. Um, and everyone else was really just a bit of a grunt, um, to use I think, an American term. Um, didn't really count in a major way. It was, was tended to be how uh, society looked at it in, in spiritual terms. So now we touch on a little bit on the role of relics. Uh, we said that they were items associated or parts of people. You know, you might have the, um, you know, the a fingernail of John the Baptist or something in your church. Uh, churches wanted to collect these things because they became uh, linked with spiritual power. It's interesting. You know, we don't, obviously don't have relics today in, uh, in Protestant churches. 
But sometimes, do we have other sorts of things that take their place? Is an interesting um, background question. One of the things that built into the Pope's claim as the, the Bishop of Rome turning into the Pope, in other words, having authority over the universal church, is the fact he's got the relics of Peter and Paul in Rome. That's where we believe Peter and Paul were martyred. Their bodies are somewhere in that city. That gives that city, in, in this way of looking at the world, uh, preeminence above, above others. A guy called Charlemagne, who was an emperor, had his throne stuffed. He had hundreds of little pockets in his throne stuffed with bits and pieces of hobby people because it was seen as... Uh, so check out your pastor's study and their chair if you get, get a chance. Um, because he felt that was going to support his power. Okay. Um, papal indulgences. This is an idea that started, as you can see there, in the 11th century. It's, it's still with us. I remember the Pope at the time, just before the year 2000, saying uh, he was issuing a special indulgence in honour of the turn of the millennium. And it could be as simple as giving up smoking for a day or something like that. I've got the article. I've got the clipping. Um, so, in, and there's a funny word here. Super erogation. Okay. My dad joke there is that this has got nothing to do with an efficient way of watering your garden. <laughs> but So the idea was, so you have to link a couple of things together here. The concept of purgatory, people usually, unless you were a saint, in which case you just zoomed straight through uh, purgatory. Never went there. Straight to heaven. So you've got the concept of purgatory. Most people were expected to spend a long time, maybe a couple of million years, in purgatory, okay, uh, being purged before you got into heaven. So clearly, you didn't want to spend time there. Um, super irrigation is um, people who've done so much more than what is necessary. So all the saints, all the holy people. If you, if you, you know, this is a bit of a crude image, but if you visualise a high jump bar, and the high jump bar is the level you need to jump to be saved. Um, the, you know, and let's say it's the level of this microphone. Okay. Well, the saints just all go through the roof, which is clearly a, a total and utter waste of effort. You know, there's a massive gap between the microphone and the roof. What, what do we do with that? Well, that was seen. That extra effort was seen as sort of like a heavenly deposit that you could draw on. This was a concept that developed. So their works, their, what they did, their virtue, their holiness was this super irrigation idea. Indulgences became a method by which people could tap into that. So if you've seen the Martin Luther movie, and we get into Luther very soon, uh, you'll realise that that was one of the things he was protesting against. Because what you would do would be you would pay a certain amount of money, you would go to a certain church on a certain day, view all the relics, and you would get a certificate um, saying, um, let's see, I'll, I'll pick on your great aunt Esther for a moment. Deb had a great aunt Esther who, who died at 102 um, a few years ago. So if we were back then, we would be worried about Esther's salvation. So we would go and pay the money and see the relics and get this certificate that might give us um, 200,000 years off Esther's time in purgatory. And it would have. 
get out of purgatory. No, break that. No, reduce time in purgatory for Esther for 200,000 years. You'd actually get that. Okay. Um, so this is a very alien idea uh, to us, but it was what was developing during the ages. Okay. We then have Pope. Yeah, the Pope had the keys to that. The Renaissance. Um, some of you would have heard of this. This is really happening uh, towards the end of the Middle Ages. And it really means, there's a phrase meaning rebirth. It's a cultural thing we associate it with, with the arts. And because we've got universities um, happening at this time, one of the good, there's very few good things came out of the Crusades. One of the good things was books and scholars. Uh, you know, hey, when you go on holidays, you bring back souvenirs. So those, the crusaders who came back said, oh, look, we've got a few, look at these souvenirs, with books, scholars. You know? And universities benefited from that. So you had people who could, could now read Greek, read Hebrew, uh, when very few people in the, in the West could actually do that. They're coming to the universities. Um, and something called humanism comes, comes on the scene and one of the key aspects of that, people start looking back at sources. What? Where did it start off? You know? Now, one of the things that this does is, um, rather than looking at what do I believe about God and looking at what the latest thing the Pope said was, people will start, well, why don't we go back to ooh, the New Testament? Huh? Uh, why don't we go back to what seems to be the beginning, the original source? Now, that's... Seems quite logical to us, but it was a, a new approach then. Popes became art collectors. If you've ever been to Europe and checked, it, checked out some great cathedrals there, which are amazing, uh, but you'll see a, a bit of the budget uh, went on some of those things. Fascination with the original languages picks up at this time because of this idea of going back to sources. So if we're going back to the New Testament, why don't we go back to the Greek? Yeah. So we... There's a momentum picking up here that's gradually going to build, bring the Middle Ages to an end. And we get a few what I call voices in the wilderness, um, some of these people you may have, may have heard of, who, as the Middle Ages come to an end, start saying things that are uncomfortable for the way the church has been going for a very long time. One of these is a guy called John Wycliffe, um, who we uh, link with Bible translation. Still, very good um, reasons for that. So he was English from Oxford, started, so as you can see, Roman Catholic priest, started reading the Bible um, and thinking for himself and saying, well, whoa, I... Now, here's a big word, big word alert, transubstantiation, okay? Um, that is the Roman Catholic belief that when you, the priest prays for the communion elements, they literally become the body and the blood of Jesus. So Wycliffe said, oh, no, uh, no, no. Don't think so. Uh, purgatory, mm, can't really see that. Um, all these pilgrimages to holy places, um, that's a bit of a waste of time. And all those other things there, um, he disagreed with. Which was a dangerous thing to do, really. Um, and the next thing he did was even more dangerous. So... The, the Pope claimed to be the vicar of Christ. Now, vicar means you're standing in the place of. Right? Well, he sort of turns that on his head. And um, 
there starts to be some pretty um, blunt criticism of the church. The church is now very wealthy, um, and which he sees as, as a problem. And he's one of the, um, really the first person to translate the whole Bible into English, but he does it from Latin. So he's really taking that Latin translation that's been around for a thousand years by this stage and turning that into English. But he's still, um, it, this is still a very radical thing to do because by this stage the Roman Catholic Church has come to the opinion that it's not at all a good thing for people to really read the Bible um, because what happens when people read the Bible is they get different points of view and then they start saying things like this guy has started to say. Um, and his followers got a nickname of Lollards, which is apparently means mutterers. So again, he is um, before the printing press. So this is all any translation is handwritten, which you know you can imagine how long it would take you to hand copy out an entire Bible. Right? So people obviously have bits and pieces that they've handwritten, and so they'd, they'd memorise it. And you'd have people who were were preaching who weren't clergy. Here's a picture of him. Now, surprisingly, uh, he actually died of natural causes, uh, considering some of the things that he, he said. Although, tapping into the bizarre nature of, of, of church history, um, some years after he died, because they realised, well, you know, he's done some terrible things. So, what, what can we do? The guy's dead. Well, we can dig up his body and burn it. And as a heretic, and scatter his ashes into the river. So that's what they did. In the meantime, a bit later, there's a Dutch guy who um, has a bit of fun satirising the church, but his main claim to fame, from our point of view, is that he goes back to the Greek New Testament and actually produces, um, and he's now after the printing press, so this is now printed, he produces a Greek New Testament that people can use. And if they're inclined to, and a bunch of people were, uh, then translate into their own languages the scriptural text directly from the Greek. He also produced another Latin version, so people could compare the old Latin version with a, a newer Latin version. And obviously people started to read this and, and see things. Literacy is rising at this time. Universities have been around for a few hundred years. More and more people can, can read and so that leads to more and more vernacular translations. And this leads to, um, obviously we're going to talk very soon about Martin Luther and his German translation, but also to the King James Version uh, of the Bible. Um, Erasmus's manuscripts that he got could access were mainly 9th and 10th century, so he wasn't accessing very old manuscripts. He was put under some political pressure as well to include some things that he knew were dubious, uh, but anyway, he's looking rather, rather chilled there. Um, so all of these factors are bringing us to the Reformation. Up until 1500, Europe could really be seen as, uh, as Christendom, a Christian kingdom. There really weren't any divisions. Any dissenting voices really had been, had been squashed. Um, people recognised the Pope's authority. But a few years later, that changes because a few of the things have said, printing press rising literacy, urbanisation, more and more people are moving to cities, which means ideas travel much faster in a city. The Crusades really had damaged the papal, the, 
paper credibility. There was one time early in the, in the 15th century where there'd actually been three popes at once. Well, then there was a third one to sort out the mess. So uh, you had a pope in Rome, a pope in Avignon, and they're both sort of you know, hurling insults across the playground at each other. And then a third one comes in and tries to settle the mess. So people are noticing things, and they're noticing some corruption in the church as well. So enter into the scene Martin Luther. Um, now, a lot of you will probably know a, a, a bit about Luther's um, story. But he was somebody who really couldn't find uh, peace with God. He became uh, an Augustinian monk because he feared for his life, made a, a pledge to I think, St Anne um, that if he survived the thunderstorm that he was in, he would become a monk. He did that, tried everything that was offered by the medieval Roman Catholic Church to find peace with God and couldn't do it. Um, he just had a sense that the gulf between God and himself was too big. Um, those verses in Romans were a, a key to his, um, his understanding. When he looked at the phrase, the righteousness of God, he thought this is something that is a characteristic of God and it actually separates God from me and separates God from everyone. God is righteous and we are not. Um, his breakthrough came when he realised that, that that could be understood as God's righteousness can actually be um, shared with us. And that, that set him on a different path. He first comes to our attention with the, the thing called the 95 Theses, uh, which are 95 really short statements about a, a sentence each, mainly protesting against this idea of indulgences that we've referred to. This, this wasn't new. Um, although Luther is probably most famous for these uh, statements, pretty much everything in there had been said by other people beforehand. What does become new are these three documents he produces in, in 1520. And when you put those together, uh, what they do, they attack the exclusive right of the Pope to interpret Scripture, uh, compares Rome to Babylon, says there's only two sacraments, not seven, and very revolutionary, um, says that everybody can approach God. Now, if you remember a few slides ago, we looked at the seven sacraments and said that that really is, uh, ties everybody up completely from birth to death um, to the organised church, the ordained clergy, etc. Luther is now really offering a very different answer to the question, where is the authority and what is the church that we flagged at the beginning? And it's one that is fundamentally threatening to the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church. There he is. Now, if you've seen the movie, you'll know that he got into a bit of strife, uh, went into hiding, had his friends, he was kidnapped by his friends, stuck in a castle, and of course, what everyone does when you're kidnapped by your friends and stuck in a castle is you translate the Bible into your own language, um, which he did in, in the New Testament, came out in 1522. Very interestingly, there was a direct link um, between what he, his theology taught people and social unrest. Um, there's a fascinating document of, issued by the, called the Peasants' Demands. Um, and some of these statements would be revolutionary today, and goodness knows how they felt about them back then. But one of them would be, now we're talking peasants, so we're talking people who really can't read and write. Okay? Saying, um, we demand the right to appoint our own pastors. And 
the next breath, and you think, how do you have a segue between these two? We demand the right to go fishing in streams that aren't owned by anyone. And, and it, oh, we demand the right to present any further uh, issues that we see authorised by the Word of God in future. Okay. And then, oh, we want to be able to go hunting in fields that aren't owned by anyone. And pick up firewood. And there's this seesawing between theological claims and intensely practical social issues. And it's fascinating that, I, I think it shows quite clearly whatever we do theologically is going to have a social and cultural outworking. Uh, anyway, a war starts, uh, people get killed, um, but here we see things turning on its head. Previously, the Pope interpreted Scripture. Now, the idea coming through is the Pope is accountable to Scripture. However, uh, with Luther, now Germany at the time was a patchwork of little states, dozens and dozens of different states with their own duke or prince or whatever. Um, because the church-state link, which you'll remember, had been in place since Constantine, it's been in place for 1,200 years, people still can't think outside of that. Okay? So when you think suddenly what you've got here, you've got your standard Roman Catholic church, and now you've got this Lutheran thing emerging as an option. Option was not a popular word back then, by the way. Um, well, oh, what do we do? We've got two different religions emerging here, two different forms of Christianity. The only way they could conceive of it was, oh, well, the prince of whatever region decides. And what he decides, if he wants to be Lutheran, that country, that, that area is Lutheran. Or if he wants to be Roman Catholic, it's Roman Catholic. So it stayed that way uh, in Germany for a while, but that led to the problems. Okay. You already know a bit about their wedding night. Um, oh, we, do, we, do, we do have the, um, the record of the person who was there, by the way. We, we historians are interested in these things. Um, the quote, and it's delightfully ambiguous, um, Jonas Justice, who was witness of the consummation of Martin and Katie Luther's marriage, said, um, and I'm going to take the theological high road with this statement, um, the sight brought tears to my eyes. Okay. Now, the way I'm interpreting that is that, see, previously you couldn't be married and do anything really spiritual. Right? Because if you were spiritual, you were clergy and you were supposed to be celibate. Okay. The idea of a married person being spiritual didn't work. Just like the idea of someone who ploughs the field being spiritual didn't work. So, okay, a bit uncomfortable watching the consummation of someone's marriage, I'd imagine, but that was a very physical, tangible symbol of exactly what Luther was teaching. Okay. You, the, the marriage state, you can serve God in the marriage state. <coughs> okay, um, we now go to another guy with a pointy beard called John Calvin. A little bit later than Luther. And he, he was a, uh, a lawyer by training, famous book, Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he also wrote with um, the Roman Catholic Church. Like Luther, the different new word alert, magisterial, like the word magistrate. Okay? He was also thought the best model was for the 
for the church and state to continue working together, as long as it wasn't working along Roman Catholic lines. However, uh, and also, everyone's still quite comfortable with killing heretics, by the way. Okay? So this Reformation period is sort of a cusp period between the Middle Ages and the Modern Age. Our idea of toleration of different points of view is not really there yet. Okay? Um, so his theology departs a bit from Luther's in a number of ways. Both really had an emphasis, although Calvin probably more so, on God's absolute sovereignty. Um, and this creates, obviously, various controversies. God elects um, whom he will save. The response is ours. Um, and therefore, we have to deal with this issue of, of uh, predestination. But no one can really say who is elect or who isn't. But there are various signs that one can look at. But where Calvin, in a sense, changed the world in a way that Luther didn't, is that this last point, so whereas Luther was very much saying, well, you know, the religion of the ruler is a religion of the state and you shouldn't go against the ruler, Calvin could conceive that uh, it could be the Christian duty to actually move God's purpose forward in such a way that could require us to stand against the state. So for, for that reason, in a sense, Calvin's theology was... Uh, where, where that was adopted, we saw more of that action, social action, and perhaps revolution. Meanwhile, the Catholics aren't exactly standing still. Okay, the Catholic or Counter Reformation, depending on how you uh, you see it, as more of a, a knee-jerk reaction to the Protestants, or perhaps a genuine reformation within the Roman Catholic Church, was on the back foot by the 1540s. Okay? Uh, but then a number of things happened. Now, the, the Jesuits or the Society of Jesus. Um, comes on the scene, and that was a key part of it. I've got a quote there um, that you can probably read. Basically, this guy who founded the Jesuits is saying, look, if the church says something is white and we think it's black, we have to say it's white. Okay? So, in other words, the church is right no matter what, which is still capturing very much a, a medieval um, way of thinking. And the, the Jesuits, though, were, became a very strong force in, in education, and um, moving the Roman Catholic Church into a more um, probably aggressive phase with Ignatius Loyola. Council of Trent, three sessions over 18 years, looked at all the things the Protestants were saying about uh, scripture, the role of the Pope, salvation, etc. And basically, they froze things in time. They grabbed hold of one of their theologians, Aquinas, who was from a couple of hundred years before, and made him really the official theologian of the Catholic Church. One of the issues about authority, remember we keep asking, you know, what is the church and where is the authority? So whereas, as we've seen, the Protestants were coming out saying authority is in Scripture and even the Pope is judged by Scripture, the Roman Catholic Church responded by saying, well, not just Scripture but also tradition. So if something has been taught and practised for hundreds of years, then it has a claim on us. We can look at that as authority. 
Um, and even today, you know, if you're having a, a chat with a, a Roman Catholic friend about issues of faith, you will often find them coming from this particular view. You'll be arguing something from scripture, and mm -hmm. they might come up with something from tradition, and you're thinking, well, why on earth are they giving tradition so much place? Well, it goes back to um, the Council of Trent. Okay, uh, we, they, they wanted to stick with the Latin version of the scriptures, they wanted to stick with the extra books they've got in the Old Testament, they did everything they could to discourage common language vernacular translations. And salvation was not only through God's grace received through faith, uh, but works are part of it, which clearly, again, is um, against the Protestant view. They acknowledged that there were some problems in the indulgence area, but as we've seen, that stays. Uh, and they're sticking, of course, with the, the seven sacraments, not the two. Now, from this, um, a lot of education directives take place. Uh, index of prohibited books. A whole lot of books you weren't allowed to read if you're a good Catholic. Obviously anything written by a Protestant. The interesting thing is how long this index of uh, prohibited books lasted. Anyone want to make a guess? Still to today? Close. So Vatican II, which was in the 1960s, was really when they stopped this. So for 400 years, they had a list of books that if you're a good Catholic, you weren't allowed to read. Um, oh, yes, nobody expects um, the Spanish Inquisition, another sort of Monty Python thing. Um, so the Inquisition was basically a, a, a way of figuring out who is teaching incorrect stuff, who do we need to torture or, or um, correct in our local area. Um, and Catholicism now is... is gearing up and ready to, to confront Protestantism. Okay, M meanwhile, over in England, a lot of exciting things are happen happening, particularly if you were marrying Henry VIII, and there was a large queue of those um, people. Now, Henry VIII, King of England, really theologically was more Roman Catholic than anything else, um, but broke away from Rome because he wanted to get rid of his first wife. Um, William Tyndale, who is... You know, 150 years later than Wycliffe, we mentioned earlier, is really the first one to translate directly from the Greek New Testament into English. Um, as you can see, they had to be printed in Germany and smuggled over. Now, here's another Monty Python moment. Imagine you're, you're the Bishop of London and you're really mad about this guy translating the Bible into English. So you come up with a cunning plan to stop it. And the cunning plan is... I'm going to buy all the copies and burn them. <laughs> what is wrong with this cunning plan? Some of you have spotted it, I can tell you're laughing. You've just financed a second edition. Okay. Um, that is exactly what happened, unfortunately, the bishop cut it. Okay, so he moves on. Um, he unfortunately gets killed for translating the Bible, gets burnt at the stake. Um, and his final prayer. Lord opened the King of England's eyes, uh, was answered um, just a few years later when, in fact, um, Henry VIII authorises a Bible to be placed in all churches. But then he, immediately after that, got very concerned about people reading it as well and wanted to restrict who could read it. Um, four years later, yeah. There's Tyndale. Oh, a couple more pictures uh, coming up. Okay, Henry VIII. Um, 
Yeah, so the Church of England was created by an act of Parliament, the theology stayed Roman Catholic. Now, if you've, there've been millions, a slight exaggeration, there've been many, many um, TV and movies about Henry VIII and his wives. Um, and there was this seesawing, as many of you would probably know, his, he, he, when he dies, his son Edward VI takes the throne, he's, he's nine, I think. Um, but he's, England moves in a more Protestant direction under him. He dies of tuberculosis or something, still as a teenager, and then uh, Mary, from him, his first wife, who is a pronounced Catholic, comes to the throne, reigns for a few years, and she moves everything back in a Roman Catholic direction. So she burns the people she doesn't like and puts in Roman Catholicism. Uh, when she dies, Elizabeth comes to the throne. Elizabeth is, moves things more in a Protestant direction, and they stay there for 45 years. Now, the person you don't want to be, or the group of people you don't want to be part of during this time, is you don't want to be a nun. Okay? Um, because Henry VIII basically took over the monasteries and all these nuns. Now, remember, if you're a nun, you've taken, you've married Jesus. Right? You've taken a vow of celibacy. You're never going to marry anyone. But if suddenly all the property's been pinched and the king said, you're out of, you know, just go. And you say, well, what do I do? And they say, well, um, get married. So someone get married, obviously have children. And that's, that's okay under Henry, and that's okay under Edward. Mary comes back as a, as a fierce Roman Catholic and calls them all whores for breaking their marriage vow to God. And leave that husband, leave those children, get back into the convent. So, oh, oh okay. Um, and then Mary dies, and Elizabeth comes onto the throne, and it's, why did you leave your husband and kids? Now, I haven't studied this extensively, but I'd like to think that was the birthplace of the modern counselling industry. Right there. <laughs> you, know, you did not want to be a nun at that time. Um, okay. But under Elizabeth, there's a 45-year period there where there's some stability. There's Henry. Okay, so, last line. This Reformation era, where is the authority at the end of the Reformation era? What are we left with? Well, we're in a situation where there's no longer one church, um, but several. So you've got the Lutheran, you've got the Reform, which follows more after John Calvin. You've got the Church of England, which starts looking pretty Roman Catholic, but then you've got people trying to take it in a slightly different direction. Um, we haven't even mentioned the Anabaptists. They, everyone hated them. Um, and they were persecuted and all killed. So one of the other things that's happening is that whole sacramental system that built up under the Roman Catholic Church is under threat. Uh, you've got Scripture being put forward as the authority now, not the, the Pope or the clergy. And the interesting thing, as we'll see very definitely when we get into tomorrow's session, what that does in practice is it moves the authority to the individual. Because individuals are now interpreting, reading and interpreting scripture and making their own decisions. Um, and that means that the, the laity, the unordained, are now seen as a spiritual priesthood. Um, and they can serve, uh, they can go to God directly in prayer, not through saints or anything like that, or pilgrimages. And one of the things that comes through the Reformation is you can serve God in any area of life. So if you are a farmer, you serve God being a farmer. Um, if you're married, 
serve God, be married. Um, you can serve God in, in any state. And it's not privileging something over another. So we're starting to see very different, not a, attempt to say a very different church, we're starting to see very different churches and options emerge at this time.